Good morning, everyone. So there aren't a lot of people still left alive who remember hearing that speech on the radio uh, when it was originally aired, though there are some, and, and I always have enjoyed hearing their stories of growing up during that time. Right? There are still a few people left alive who remember sitting in front of their radio and hearing this terrifying announcement that just a couple decades after the so-called war to end all wars, that the nations of the earth were going to do it all over again. And I always have loved hearing my grandmother's stories of growing up during that time and how, how her older brothers signed up to serve their king and country and how everyone back home supported the war effort with where there was rationing and, and, and people growing victory gardens and saving every possible scrap of aluminum they could so that they could build aircraft out of them. And how, how her father would stay up late every night uh, listening to his radio after everyone had gone to bed for news of what was going on in Europe, right? Because he wanted to know whether the names of his two boys who were over there would be read as listed among the dead. Or maybe the king would address his people and give some word of hope and encouragement. And at that time, there still lingered, I think, the understanding that when the king spoke, that it actually meant something. Maybe people back then were just less jaded and cynical than we are now. I don't know. Or maybe they just managed to set that aside somehow to get through those terrible years. But at any rate, I think the movie, The King's Speech, well illustrates the truth that in times of difficulty, people look to their leaders to inspire and instruct them with words of hope. And that that scene, it just, it gets me every time. I've seen that movie many times, but that scene at the end, I still can't watch it without getting goosebumps. And I can only imagine the emotion of when people originally heard those words for themselves. And of course, as Christians, we have a message of hope and inspiration and instruction from our king. And it's written all throughout the pages of the Bible. But if we were to look to one specific section, we could do no worse than to look to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. It's the text we're going to be exploring in these next weeks following Easter. And in it we'll find both great hope and great challenge. So I would invite you to stand, as, as is our custom, as we hear our sermon text for today. Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he, uh, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, 
for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. You may have a seat. Unlike my sermons, Jesus doesn't show any videos at the start or really offer any sort of introduction whatsoever. He just, well, he doesn't stand. He was sitting, it says, to teach. But he just opens into it. He just kind of makes a shot across the bow and says, Hey, you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like? Here it is. Looks kind of different than what you, uh, what you think, doesn't it? These words are familiar, right? We've probably all heard these words many times. But 20 centuries does not, or at least it should not, take the edge off of Jesus' words. These are not the rules our culture plays by. And these are not the rules, if, if we're honest with ourselves, that we are naturally inclined to play by either. There is a major and unavoidable conflict here. And the thing is, the church of the living God has always existed in this kind of state of crisis, right? There have been times, for sure, when the church has been marginalized, and there are times when the church has been successful and doing well and influential. But the reality of what it truly means to follow Jesus is always going to put us in conflict with the principalities and powers. In a time of of war or crisis, it's necessary to take sides. And we saw that in that speech that we just watched the clip, right? King George addressing his people. And he says, right, we're called to meet this, this challenge. We're forced into a conflict, right? He, he gets on the radio and he says, here's what Hitler and what Nazism stands for, and we reject it. It is against everything that we hold true and dear, and we must stand up against it. And as we work through the Sermon on the Mount, starting with today's passage, we'll see Jesus doing the same thing, right? Here's what the world, whether we want to talk about the pagan world, the religious world, whatever, here's what that stands for, and here's what my kingdom stands for. You can build your life on the sand, or you can build your life on the rock. What's it going to be? Following from that, in a time of crisis, it's necessary to make sacrifices. And again, King George VI called his people to make sacrifices, even lay down their lives. And that scene that always gets me is the, that out-of-focus scene with the soldiers standing around their vehicle smoking cigarettes, and it zooms in on that one young guy standing at the back when he's talking about calling his people that will make this cause their own. Right? Call his people to... They may have to lay down their lives to win this conflict. They may have their homes destroyed. They may lose everything. And Jesus calls us to a similar kind of sacrifice. It's going to cost us. We'll be called upon to store up our treasures in heaven rather than here on earth. We will be called to do the right thing whether we receive recognition for it or not. We'll be called to forgive others even when it hurts us. So let's look at our passage for today. Now, in many ways, it's kind of impossible to do justice to the whole Beatitudes in one message, especially because I'm already trying to introduce us to a new sermon series. But as they say, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So here goes. So seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. 
saying. Jesus opened his mouth and he said words. In Jesus Christ, the God of the universe took on a human form and sat down in a specific physical location and opened his mouth and said stuff to people. Have we not seen what happens when God says stuff? Right? God says, let there be, and this whole world filled with everything from stars to snowflakes, salamanders and strawberries, springs into being. God says to Moses, Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And by the end of that story, the mightiest empire on the face of the earth, maybe of all time, is left a smoking miserable heap of rubble and God's people go free. And our text this morning, right? The voice of the Lord is mighty and powerful. The voice of the Lord strips the forest bare. The voice of the Lord is pure power beyond anything that we can comprehend. It should make us tremble. And when Jesus opened his mouth, that same voice sounded forth. The words that we read in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, these are not, as they've so often been characterized, nice little moral suggestions or good ethics that we can just kind of take a little bit here and there and, and it might make our life a little better. These are an authoritative declaration of truth and reality. Blessed, or blessed, whichever you want to pronounce it. What does that mean? We all think we know what it means, right? We say the word a lot. We have a terribly hard time articulating it, though, I think. It's one of those words we just kind of sprinkle into our prayers a little bit when we don't really know what to ask on someone's behalf. Oh, Lord, bless so-and-so. Just bless them and keep them. And what do we really mean by that? I don't think we know half the time. Blessed, though, has been the traditional translation of the Greek word makarios in this passage and others since even before the King James Version. And everybody's just kind of followed it ever since. I don't think it's a bad translation. I just think it's a translation that's probably a little vague and kind of religious-sounding. And we don't exactly know what we mean when we say it. You know, maybe we wouldn't pray for people to be blessed so much if we had in mind what Matthew 5, 1 to 11 says blessed looks like, but anyhow, we'll get there. Some translators have opted for happy as a translation here, and noting that that's kind of the more common sense of the word in Greek outside of the New Testament. J.B. Phillips' translation of the New Testament was kind of the first one to do so, and a number of other modern commentators have followed. Now, there is something about happy as a translation that I really like, especially because we're looking at this sermon series just after Easter, and I hope that we can see in Jesus' call to live the kingdom life, there is a sense of joy and excitement. This is something we don't have to do. This is something we get to do. The kingdom life Jesus calls us to is not one primarily of harsh, crushing, ethical demands. The kingdom life is a life characterized by joy. But the problem with happy, however, is for many people it's only a psychological state based on changing external circumstances rather than on a deeper reality that's declared by God. Here Jesus is teaching in a particularly Jewish style. We have many kind of similar blessed is the one or blessed is the man statements in the Psalms. 
Perhaps most famously, the Psalms begin in Psalm 1, right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I think you can probably see the connection between that and Jesus' style of teaching without looking very hard, right? There's two different ways or paths that are laid out. One is the desirable one, one is not. This is kind of typical of Jewish wisdom literature, and Jesus teaches in a very traditional Jewish style in a lot of ways. I don't think this is a smooth or memorable translation, but given this style of teaching, I would propose something along the lines of, you know you're on the path of favor with God when... However, because that's long and awkward, I'll probably just read what's in front of me, and that says blessed, but... Keep in mind that that word actually means something that's a little bit difficult to get at. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Much ink has been spilled over the difference between this passage and the parallel one in Luke, where Jesus just said, blessed are you poor, rather than poor in spirit. But given that our time is short, and we'll just have to be content to kind of notice that as we cruise by, Luke is often more concerned with with, uh, financial, like, wealth and poverty kind of concerns. Um, But in Matthew's account, we have poor in spirit, and, and that's what we have before us today. Nevertheless, when we look at any kind of metaphor, it's important that we don't just kind of throw out the words and try to get to some kernel underneath. Jesus used the word poor for a reason. Someone who is poor usually knows he is poor, right? He knows that he lacks material goods. He knows that he isn't able to buy his way through life. He isn't able to fool people with a fancy car and nice clothing and season tickets to professional sports teams. He knows he doesn't have an emergency fund that he can fall back on should anything happen. He knows he's not successful. He knows that he is needy. To be poor in spirit is to know that same kind of need deep within our souls. Right? It's to know that we lack the kind of righteousness that's, that's going to cut it with God. It's to know that we have no emergency fund of stored up good works, no legacy fund of piety from our forefathers we can draw on. It's to know that in terms of spiritual and moral things, we have nothing to bring that's going to impress God. Nothing. And yet this, far from being a problem in God's eyes, it's the very thing that's a prerequisite for entrance into his kingdom. I really wish that I understood better what the kingdom of heaven is all about. I wish there was some way that I could just sum it up succinctly and in a nice phrase that we could all understand so that we could grasp it and live it out and see it more of a reality in our lives. But you know what? Even Jesus didn't do that. He never just gave a definition. He told these parables about it where he'd say, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And then he would tell a story. Preached about it in these kind of strange, upside-down, inside-out ways like we see in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what you think you know. The kingdom of heaven is the opposite. And it's not just about going to heaven when we die. Of course, it includes being forever with the Lord for certain. But it's more than that, right? It's about the kind of transformed attitudes of mind and heart and transformed relationship with God and transformed relationship with others. It's about living as God intended for us to live in this broken world. 
about serving our God in love and faithfulness, even when the culture around us, and sometimes even the religious culture around us, says that's foolish and crazy. There's no way to buy your entrance into the kingdom of heaven and get citizenship there. You can't go to some fixer or pay a bribe to get a phony passport drawn up to get you in. The only way to get in is to admit your poverty of spirit, your deep, deep state of emptiness and need. Blessed are those who mourn. That's a tough one, but fitting, I think, given what we've heard in the news recently. And given where we've been in our sermon series uh, up to Easter, right? We look at suffering in the Christian life. And often the, the things that we face in life do cause mourning. We looked at when healing doesn't happen. We looked at the, the sadness and loss that comes from betrayal. We looked at Jesus' own mourning over the city of Jerusalem and their hardness of heart. I think some important work was done in our congregation at that time. Sorrow and mourning and the circumstances that surround them, it's important. Sickness, death, disasters, human sinfulness, it all reminds us that we are not in control of our lives. No matter how hard we try, we cannot construct realities for ourselves where nothing goes wrong and where everything happens exactly the way we would like it to. You know, we can often ignore these truths for long seasons, especially in our affluent North American culture but not indefinitely. When we enter into the difficult season of mourning, we're living more in touch with reality as God sees it than at many other times because we admit, we have to, that we're not in control. Sometimes it takes these difficult seasons for God to get through to us. But they shall be comforted, right? Those who mourn in a godly fashion will be comforted, not always by a change of their circumstances in this life, but by the presence of Christ himself. When life takes from us what is most dear, we come to realize that the things of this world, even good things like friends and family, aren't enough to satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. And when we get to that place, we often, often have to before we're finally able to receive the comfort that the Lord offers. Blessed are the meek. I think we should be recognizing a pattern here. The Lord's version of what constitutes the so-called good life is not like what our culture thinks is important. Culture likes the strong, the rich, the attractive, the influential, the powerful, the entertaining. But here Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who put others before themselves, who don't bully their way to the top, who don't take every opportunity to get ahead, who associate with the lowly. This is one of Jesus' main teachings about the kingdom of heaven, right? You find your life by losing it. Those who exercise authority among the Gentiles are called great, but not so among my followers, right? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And it's the meek that shall inherit the earth. Now, I'd like to say that all the promises in the Beatitudes are not just you know, pie in the sky up in heaven when we die, that there is a this-life application for those things. This is a more challenging one, right? We believe by faith that in Christ we are the heirs of all things, but we still have a lot of waiting to do before we see that as a reality, right? We live in this world where survival of the fittest and might makes right and succeed at all costs are so deeply ingrained 
that humility and forbearance aren't always going to get you very far. That actual inheritance of ruling and reigning with Christ, which is promised in the book of Revelation, is still to come. But we long for it, don't we? We long for a world where the peace between nations isn't kept by delicately balanced treaties and trade deals and sanctions and threats of mutually assured destruction. We long for a world where we don't have to constantly choose between what's right in an ideal sense over here, but what is practical and realistic on the other hand, in the hard realities of life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So who's hungry or thirsty in general? It's the person who lacks food or lacks water, right? So who is hungering or thirsting for righteousness? The person who lacks it, obviously. But isn't this a bad place to be? Doesn't our Lord want us to live righteous lives? Well, of course he does. But he does not want us to live self-righteous lives. In God's view of things, these two are light years apart. But in actual practice, we can slide from the one into the other without even noticing it. We'll circle back around to this at the end. I believe here we can really begin to see Jesus just bringing to a point what's really going to be a focus of the whole Sermon on the Mount. The difference between self-righteousness or religious hypocrisy and the righteousness that he offers, the righteousness of his kingdom. Even those of us who know the Lord can drift into self-righteous thinking if we're not careful. The Pharisees did in Jesus' day, and many of us are more like them than we care to admit. You can affirm sound doctrine and live a morally upstanding life, but totally miss the mark because you've lost that hunger and thirst for righteousness and the continual filling of righteousness that only comes from Christ. Entrance into the kingdom of heaven and continuing life in it is a pure gift. The very righteousness of Christ himself is available to be poured into us if we will just admit our need of it. And this righteousness, like the very best kinds of food and drink, it satisfies. But it leaves you wanting more, right? It leaves you wanting the next time that you can go and get that meal that you love so well. And the righteousness of Christ is like that. Blessed are the merciful. Everyone likes the idea of showing mercy, giving second, third, fourth, fifth chances. I like the idea of it, but very few people actually like the doing of it when they're the wronged party. Do you ever notice that? When you've been on the receiving end of some wrong or injustice, it's a little bit harder to affirm that being merciful is a great idea. But as much as our human nature wants vengeance... And as much as we can even turn to Scripture and cite chapter and verse about why this or that is wrong, in the kingdom of heaven, mercy is always first and foremost. What characterizes the merciful person? Well, of course, the practice of mercy and forgiveness. But as the Sermon on the Mount unfolds, Jesus takes a lot of time to point out 
that the inner attitudes of the heart matter far more than what goes on on the outside. The truly merciful person is more than just somebody who, who forgives in order to look good in front of others. The truly merciful person is one who has mercy and forgiveness as their default attitude of heart and mind. The merciful shall receive mercy. And this is actually a huge point throughout the Gospel of Matthew. What business do you have expecting God to forgive your sins and extend mercy to you, Jesus says, if you're not willing, it, willing to extend it to your neighbor? Doesn't this sound a little bit like legalism, though? Right? Doesn't this make my reception of forgiveness from God kind of contingent on something that I do? Not exactly. To refuse to show mercy means that we haven't yet understood how grace actually works. It's not so much that God will not forgive you if you refuse to show mercy to your neighbor. It's that refusing to show mercy to someone else demonstrates that you have not really understood how mercy and forgiveness works. It's not that God won't or can't show the mercy. It's that you've made yourself unable to receive it. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now, so far, we've had a lot of statements that might be kind of contradictory to the way things work. Blessed are the meek instead of the powerful, and so forth. Here we have something which, on the surface, I think most people go, yeah, that's good, pure in heart, excellent, I like that. Yet remember Jesus' context for a moment. He lived in a culture that was obsessed in a way that we just cannot understand with ritual purity, outward purity, ceremonial purity sacrifices and offerings, avoiding those who were considered unclean. And Jesus was constantly running up against this in his ministry. And he was constantly having to remind people, it's not touching something that's unclean that makes you unclean. It's what proceeds from the thoughts and attitudes of your heart. And while many people might approve of what Jesus says about being pure in heart, How many of us would be comfortable if all our inward thoughts and fantasies and every careless word spoken, whether just in our minds or even out loud, was to be made public, put up on the screen? Zero, I would suspect. At least zero who would be telling the truth, and then you'd not only be having problems with the thoughts of your heart, you'd also be having problems with lying. Um, But the pure in heart shall see God. I think this ought to remind us, if we consider whether we are really pure in heart, if we want to see God, maybe we need to return to that bit about hungering and thirsting for righteousness and admitting our poverty of spirit. It's the only way. Blessed are the peacemakers. Here again, we have a statement that seems like most anyone would affirm it, whether they're secular or religious. Right? We long for peace in our world, but... Actually, given the contradictory nature of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, this might seem a little bit out of place. We've been talking about how this is is a message of a conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. But we all like peace, right? But the peace that Jesus speaks of is not the kind of flaky, your truth is truth for you and my truth is truth for me kind of peace that we like to talk about in our secular culture. That's not peace. And as we can see, sooner or later, usually that way of thinking gets to a place where we can't get along 
anymore, where the difference of different opinions about truth can't be accommodated one to another. Christ did not come to make this sort of tepid peace. We've just walked through Holy Week and through Easter. Jesus came to make peace through the blood of his cross. The peace he achieved for us was the end of hostilities with our Maker, purchased at the cost of his own sinless life. Puts rather a different spin on what it might mean to be a peacemaker, doesn't it? If we are to be sons of God, our peacemaking will follow the same pattern as the Son of God himself. Blessed are the persecuted. Jesus didn't promise that everyone would like us. He spends the greatest amount of time in this text talking about being persecuted for the reality of the kingdom. And in this final beatitude, he circles back to where he started and connects being persecuted for his sake back to entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And then he expands on that with this kind of side comment, and he switches from the generic third person, you know, the one who he, third person language, they, to more personal second person language, you, blessed are you. It's as if Jesus is saying, you know, this isn't just theory, this applies to you, and this applies to you. Driving home his point. This isn't just a concept. And at the end of it all, he says to rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted for the sake of righteousness and for the sake of his name because our reward is great in heaven. Perhaps happy wasn't such a bad translation after all, though this is a rather strange form of happiness. This past Easter, I don't know if you saw on the news, uh, there were two churches in the city of Halifax that were vandalized. Did anyone see that? Imagine that, the news not reporting about churches being vandalized. Hmm. Well, I I did actually see it on the news, and it was the words, F Jesus, were written in red spray paint on the doors of two churches and and on their signage. Father Simon Lobo, the pastor at St. Benedict's, one of these churches, said, Being Easter weekend, it's a particular slight to mock the resurrection of Jesus. Father Lobo did uh, later an admirable job of downplaying the graffiti and extending the offer of forgiveness to whoever, uh, whoever did the vandalism. But I think it's a, a small but interesting fulfillment of what Jesus says in this passage. Being insulted on account of the name of Jesus, right? The name of Jesus was actually included in the graffiti, right? There, there seems to be more than just throwing a rock through a window. It was graffiti with an actual message, that's not a major thing, and that, that's what uh, this clergyman said. You have to wash off some spray paint off our building. It's not a major thing when our brothers and sisters are having their churches and homes burned down and even sacrificing their lives for the sake of Jesus. But even in our own land, right, this serves as a reminder that to follow Jesus will provoke a response that's not always favorable. It will force us into a conflict. I hope I've managed to emphasize in this message that this opening passage of the Sermon on the Mount lays down a serious challenge to the way things are in this world. The world is about pride and ambition, and Jesus says, no, be meek and be merciful. The world is about image, and Jesus says, no, you have to admit your poverty of spirit and that you're broken and empty. As we'll see throughout this whole series, the way of Jesus is seriously 
radically different than the way of our world. And the only outcome is going to be conflict. The Sermon on the Mount has frequently been called a countercultural manifesto. However, I think there are a couple of dangers as we close with seeing the call of Jesus here as a parallel to the call to defeat Nazism in World War II, right? Axis versus allies, us versus them. If, if we take all of that on board, we can be tempted to become angry and bitter people who just kind of lob verbal grenades over the parapets at the usual targets out there in the world. Homosexuality, abortion, liberalism, whatever. There's plenty wrong with any number of these things. But if we're to have real identity as Jesus' kingdom followers, we have to actually stand for something and not just be against everything and be angry, bitter people. That's not to follow Jesus. There's a second danger in seeing this, though, as a primarily us-versus-them conflict. And that's to take the kinder, gentler approach of just retreating to our little Christian bubbles. Right? Just partake of Christian media, spend time with Christian people, do Christian activities, just keep separate, keep pure, and we'll be okay. Both of these approaches ignore the real thrust of what Jesus was getting at. It's true that frequently he did have the wider pagan or Roman culture in his sights as he delivered this message. It comes up in the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus always reserved his harshest critique for the religious culture that was missing the mark. We can't just see this and make this into an us-versus-them struggle. We have to see it first and foremost as an us-versus-ourselves struggle or an us-versus-what-the-Lord-is-calling-us-to-be struggle. We can't just lob grenades at those usual suspects I mentioned and ignore the gossip and the greed and the ambition and pride and self-sufficiency that may be infecting our own side. We have to hear Jesus' words addressed to us first and foremost. Right? How is it with our own souls in these areas that Jesus has been talking about? How is it with our congregation as much as I enjoy the king's speech and the, the call to win the battle against the enemy, perhaps we need to look at, at another speech delivered by another king, not a call to win a battle against our enemies, but a call to battle right, our own failures, our own problems, what we've become, how we've fallen short. So let's own that we've been forced into a conflict but let's also own that the conflict is in here and in here as much as it is with what's out there. To borrow a phrase from this king, I have a dream. I have a dream that these words of our Lord Jesus would characterize this congregation of his children. As we've heard Jesus' words in the scriptures, let us allow him to apply those words to our lives. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for your words in this passage. So much to look at in such a short time. These are challenging words, Lord. These go counter to how our culture conceives of, of living life.
how we naturally want to go about living our lives, but we recognize that you call us to live differently and live in the way of your kingdom. This isn't something we can do alone, Lord, as though these are just wise, moral, or ethical sayings. This will take your spirit living within us to work out. And these aren't things we can just flip a switch and start doing perfect, but that these words will come to characterize us more and more. May these not just be words on a page. May these be words where we encounter you, our risen Savior and our coming King. May we live for you all the days of our lives. Amen.